Hello, and welcome back to Seaweed Brain, a Percy Jackson podcast. Today, we are going to talk about Leo Valdez, baby. We've got some iconic special guests back here. Let's get started. Hello, 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 Carter. Hi. What's up? Should do it. I don't know. We're going to release this soon. There was a coup that kind of happened. Other people have more to say about that, presumably. Um, but Let's get started. Welcome back today, Ola and Jackson, who happen to be both living together in Washington, D.C. right now. How are y'all doing? Hey, um, we've been better. We Yeah. We've been better. I was in the middle of a work day on a call with one of my coworkers working on designing some graphics. And I go, oh my gosh, shots were fired into the Capitol. So that was the end of my work day. And we stayed glued to CNN for the rest of the evening. Yeah, so Don Lemon and Chris Cuomo and Anderson Cooper have wrecked my sleep schedule. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's good to stay informed. Oh, we also got, we experienced some bigotry. Um, we live in the lovely Calorama neighborhood, mm-hmm. half a mile away from the Obama's D.C. residence, if anyone's curious. Um, we have money now. Um, <laughs> and so we were walking down the street after picking up dinner from this little sandwich pop-up shop. And we there was a group of unmasked people in front of us. They were of the white variety. And they walked past a man that was wearing a Trump hat. And they were like, great hat that looks awesome. And the man responded, yeah, got to get ready for tomorrow. And they all cheered. This is on January 5th, mind you. They cheered for known white supremacist hate group to march on Washington. And I've never been so disgusted with the world we live in that in my seemingly safe, old, white, bougie neighborhood, I still can't go pick up the sandwich and walk home without facing bigotry in 2021. It's like absolutely insane. Like, it's no different than 1965. Like, the literal Ku Klux Klan attacked our capital, but it's not even being called domestic terrorism. Yeah, I think it also, just for context, this guy was standing outside with, like, a case of Bud Light. Oh, yeah, there was Bud Light. Now, honestly, I like Bud Light. <laughs> not gonna lie. I like a nice aluminum bottle Bud Light when I go to the bar. It doesn't shatter and no one can spike your drink. So, Bud Light plug. <laughs> but also Bud Light, the beer of white supremacists. The, the, the beer of white supremacists. We're, right. we're reclaiming Bud Light for people of color. Okay, good. That's what today's yes. episode is actually I don't know about. Why, the, why that's a we. I'm very much a white person. Everything about me very white. Okay, so I like to think that Jackson lives in my black household and I live in Jackson's Jewish household, but mm-hmm. maybe he doesn't think that. <laughs> no, 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 no. I very much think that way. <laughs> I very much think that Wow. It's a sad Ooh. day when you can't even go to the sandwich pop-up shop. It's really good. Like, but we've been there twice. We went twice. We went again today. Oh, we good. We didn't learn our lesson. Okay, no, 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 no. That is on bravery, and that's on taking space and returning to the sandwich pop-up shop. There was a promo where you're supposed to get 20% off your purchase, and I tried to put in the promo code, and it wasn't valid, and I still went. I got mine because reparations. That's true. Are we allowed to talk about race on this? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> unlike, I feel like unlike Rick Riordan, this group is qualified to talk about racially diverse characters. Yeah. Rick, he got better, but he didn't really do the thing of this book. I get uncomfortable anytime he describes a person of color's skin as food-like or flavor-like. Yep. Yeah, he was really problematic with that one. And I also just hate that every other person of color gets validated in their POC identity 
except for Piper, and they kind of mock the fact that she's part Cherokee. <laughs> Little weird. Yep. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get into Leo um shortly, but I think first quick reminder, um the Lost Hero has no Persebeth in it, and therefore we are doing it in a different way. We're doing one episode per character. Last week we did Piper, today we're talking Leo, next week we'll talk about Jason. Um but today we're also gonna talk about some of the many like interesting godly cameos that come up in this book on the very like unintelligible confusing quest but yeah before we do that i don't know if we need to ask them any more questions do actually i, I do kind of want to know this do either of you guys have a dream actor to play percy in um disney plus age doesn't matter um the late i can't remember his last name the late cameron like the kid with the cameron boys yes cameron boys right yeah cameron boys i know that he died rest in peace but like i would have loved to see him play percy he would have done it so much justice I can see that. Yeah, Jackson, do you have any opinions on that? I'm just excited to watch it happen. Because, like, basically what I've been seeing is, like, at least with, like, Marvel and Disney+, Plus, the cinematography looks amazing. And also, we just watched the new Wonder Woman movie, and we have a lot of thoughts on that. Garbage. Mostly that it was garbage. Worst movie I've seen in years. I think we're going to talk specifically about the Wonder Woman franchise when the Amazons appear in Son of Neptune spoilers, so... Cool, cool, cool. We have opinions. Um, But Disney+, Plus (laughs) seems to have... We have we are Disney and we have unlimited money. So like why wouldn't we just pay for the best cameras and the best casting and the best directing that money can buy because and the best CGI. The best the CGI, best like we so have cool. the money and Wonder Woman, like I feel like DC and Warner Brothers is like we're going out of business, so we're putting all of our remaining money into the flashiness of this. Yep. And like we were talking about that, like we have HBO Max. Because we live in an old white person condo building that comes with HBO. <laughs> but like premium if, cable. Premium cable. In the rent. All utilities included. We live like kings and queens. Except we're not allowed to go outside. So it's a toss-up. We can't toss go up. outside. So um, but we were talking about how like if we had needed to pay for this movie, we would have written HBO and been like, give us our money back. It was so fucking It was bad. bad. But I'm just excited to see what Disney Plus can do. I'm also excited for the Kane Chronicles on Netflix. I think that's going to be very fun. I'm so excited. The Kane Chronicles are slept on. I just, I trust that like they can throw enough money at this to make it look good. I 100% agree. I am currently using my friend's friend's ex-boyfriend's HBO Max. Use so. ours. We're a more stable connection. <laughs> Thank you. Also, I was <laughs> going to say, if you're interested in the Kane Chronicles, this is a plug for my friend's podcast, Into the Riot Inverse. It's available on all platforms, and they're talking about the Kane Chronicles. Great. Let's start. Yeah, so this is like the first half of the episode. Half, maybe less than half. Like One of the many plot devices that this book uses as sort of a broad structure for deciding like who the villains are going to be and like what little mini quests we have is this thing that starts off with Medea, but carries on throughout like most of the series. And it's like an important subplot that really like changes like the nature of like a lot of the quests that they have, which is the fact that like people who died or should be dead are, are not like death isn't working properly and the heroes figure it out like very gradually over the course of the book. Th- this is going to come back, but I think that now is probably a good time to just like check in and be like, do we think this works? Is this necessary as a plot device? Like, does this feel inconsistent with other world logics? Because like, I think one of the general rules of fantasy that people bring up a lot is just that you can tell the property is going off the rails once death doesn't work anymore. I don't know if it's true for this. I'm, I'm inclined to say that this does it better than most of the other properties that do similar things because they like explicitly say like, this is why death is wrong and this is how you can fix it. But Once Upon a Time is like the example for me that like haunts me the most of like death went out the window and then so did the entire show. Yeah. Just wanted to hear what people thought about this. I think it works well. I think that it's like a like a six out of ten 
times I feel like the villains hit, um, and I like encountering these characters that I'm familiar with from common, like, Greek mythology. I also think it's kind of cool because there's always this lore or, like, rule with monsters that they regenerate, and I think it's really cool to see that applied to people, that, like, people are evil, and, like, these monsters will regenerate themselves regardless of how it happens, like, with their patron, as what they call it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I do think that it's nice that they have a rule and an explanation to it, like you were saying, Carter. Like, Mm -hmm. it's not like, oh random dead people are coming back. But it's like, no, some people are slipping through from the underworld with special, like they they get a fast pass. Yeah. Yeah. I like that Rick (laughs) sets a loophole, but it's not open-ended. Yeah, see, I agree with that. I think it added another layer of complexity, especially as the audience for these books kind of grew up with the books. I Mm -hmm, thought mm -hmm. that it was really nice to have that loophole because... I think if they kept the repeated like structure of we vanquished the mar- monster, let's keep going on the quest. After the five books going into this next, the same quest structure would have gotten really boring really quickly. So I like the fact that they can keep coming back and they still have all these different challenges because they are older kids. Especially yeah. because, okay, sorry to plug Madeline Miller this early, yes! but like after reading Circe, I had such a stronger appreciation for, well, mm, I'll take that back. I had less of an appreciation for the lost hero because they did Medea so dirty. So like, dirty. Medea yes. was on some evil ass shit in Circe, like evil down to the bone. King Aedes, evil, and to have her run a department store, I just felt was like again, Rick Riordan has no idea how to write women. Um, yes, that sounds really rude, but like no. he has no idea no. how to write women. It's a fact. Stick with it's it. Just even more. I feel like it gets a lot worse when we talk about evil women like Piper problematic mm-hmm. Rachel Elizabeth Darren Annabeth their relationship problematic and misogynistic mm-hmm. like very internalized mis- misogyny but like I feel like the way he writes evil women is so misogynistic and the way yeah. he describes all of the female monsters and female villains is being so much uglier and hideous than he describes the male ones and like I'm just kind of over it at this point, rereading as an adult. Yeah. Being 15 or 16, reading these when they came out, it wasn't that big of a deal. Or I guess I was younger than that. It's just like frustrating to hear how beautifully they could be written while also encompassing the same amount of evil. So I just think that young girls deserve better from Rick Riordan when they're reading the series. Well, even like, I know it's, it's different, but the way that he writes, now that you bring it up, Medea runs a department store, but Aeolus... He runs an entire fucking palace in the sky. Sure, he's a god, but like even Midas has just a giant mansion. Medea's one of the original witches, though. When you right. think of witchcraft in Greek mythology, like she's still huge. Yes. The granddaughter of Helios, like she is the granddaughter of mm-hmm. one of the oldest gods. The Titan. Yeah, yeah, he used to be. Yeah, he's a Titan. He's not even a yeah. god. He's quite literally a Titan. But also Chiron's a Titan and they have him running a summer camp. And running um, just kind of there. Yeah, not helping the heroes when they need help. I feel like after the Percy Jackson books, Chiron is not at camp more than he's at yes. camp. He's basically absent in this book. Yeah, right. he's obsolete. But I want to talk about something about camp and like back to Leo. I feel like Leo is one of the first people that we meet who is excited to be at camp and like fits in <laughs> almost immediately. Like yeah. every other character we meet is like, Percy is like, oh, I'm not a demigod. What's happening? Who's even my dad? What's going on? And I'm all alone in my cabin. 
Leo's there. He's like, oh, cool. I'm here. Sure. Oh, cool. Look at this giant forge cabin. No question about who my godly parent is because he gets claimed almost immediately. Shout out Percy and his deal with Zeus at the end of The Last Olympian. He just fits right in. And he's like, honestly, a little sad to leave a little, it seems like, when they have to go on this quest. And that was something I really appreciated because like, I was getting a little tired of like the, no, can't I just have a normal life? Like, I feel like that was a little bit overdone. Right. But also just like one more thing that I was thinking about. Just once, it would be nice if the gods weren't so fucking basic. Like, oh, Leo, your mom's a mechanic. I bet she Hephaestus. And it's like, yep, that's exactly what happened. Hephaestus was, and it's like, he's been typing. Oh. His kids be coming out POC. Wait for one second on Leo and Hephaestus. We have to finish talking about Medea first, but all of this is true. And yes. I need to hear more about that in like 10 minutes. Okay. <laughs> All this stuff you said about Medea, I was also going to plug Cersei, like, immediately by Madeline Miller, but, like, it is true. He can't write a female character. What you made the point about, like, even Midas had, like, a mansion, at least, and, like, Medea's, like, running a department store. You know, slight spoiler, but Son of Neptune, like, Iris has, like, a hippie co-op grocery store. Like, it just... Cersei herself was writing a gay spa when you read Cersei by Madeline Miller. She has an island. Yeah, and like, at least, I don't know, at least Cersei had like a whole island to herself. I don't know, everything, even going all the way back to Medusa, like every single like iconic female villain where there's such a great opportunity to subvert the myth and like bring Mm -hmm. them in or like give Mm -hmm. literally an ounce, a singular ounce of female mentorship towards any of these characters would have been so fantastic. And yet, no, like the opportunity of to have Medea as like a magical mentor to Piper or even later on Mm -hmm. to Hazel, that was such a great opportunity that was totally (laughs) because you threw her in here to what to charm speak jason and leo what is her purpose yeah. in this plot i don't understand like what what purpose of is course she, she has this right. incredible power and it can only be used to tame teenage boys like <laughs> it sucks right yeah. well, i feel like the two ends of rick's female spectrum are hideous monster or gorgeous temptress yes yeah and 100%. that's yeah. pretty much it either like like you run away in horror or you're so horny. I was I was rereading Tina Fey's biography earlier today. I, this is very <laughs> this is gonna, gonna sound really tangential, but there's a point which is that like um she like writes at length about like the feminist point of like do you remember I, I, I'm sure people remember this like the the sketch that she does with Hillary Clinton and Sarah Palin that like kicked off the Sarah Palin impersonations were basically they were arguing that like the two most powerful anti feminisms are the Hillary Clinton anti feminism of like she's so fucking disgusting ballbuster whatever and then on the other side being like she's pretty and therefore like stupid like temperance deceitful yeah like all of those things it's the same thing Mm. but just like archetypally like those are the two ways that we understand villainy from women specifically like in a gendered way where like their villainy is because of their womanhood in just different ways yes and reminder in case anyone wanted a fun reminder about medea um from the original story um it's it's present in a lot of different stories and retellings obviously the most famous is the play by euripides but she was the daughter like ola mentioned the daughter of king aetes who was the brother of circe and she was the granddaughter of helios the sun titan if circe was the first witch medea was like the second one and she was the first like truly mm-hmm. evil witch but she also got screwed over by athena and aphrodite she immediately fell in love with jason like upon first sight because she was but was it like a potion, I think, that she was given by Aphrodite and Athena, who were not pleasant in the old myth? <laughs> that, I think, could have also been an interesting tie-in with, like, Piper having feelings for Jason in this book, like, instantly for no reason, um, coming from Aphrodite here. But yeah, and there's um, different endings to the story that Medea is involved in with Jason and the Argonauts. Um, 
she goes on the journey with them. She has some kids with Jason. She ends up killing the kids is the main arc of the story. Did you want to mention these other endings, Carter, or no? I mean, I think the other endings, like, illustrate the, just, like, the different potentials there are for, like, just very divergent interpretations of the character. In some versions of the myth, she basically, like, gets two dragons to pull her chariot off into the clouds and is never seen again, which in my it's view, iconic. like, is, like, a really epic yeah. ending. Like, that, like, it reflects just the fact that Medea, in some ways, is understood as, like, very powerful and sort of untouchable like there's a very like empowering way to read that version of the myth where basically like she starts off doing things out of love and in the end like is able to literally like ascend out of the mortal plane of human desires but like in other versions of that she gets like brutally killed or like in some of them she like moves to asia and a lot of them she just like gets married to other random other heroes or like in one of the versions of the myth she like helps to heal hercules at some point which seems wildly out of character (laughs) for like the arc that she has gone on of like learning that all male heroes are trash they're just yeah yeah. people like project a lot of things onto her because she is as you say like the like one of the most iconic witches but also sort of like the origin of like these femme fatale ideas the like good girl gone bad like fatal attraction crazy in love all of those things i think are sort of like yeah early embodied by her yeah and that would have been another great way to handle medea in this book like having her tell piper all heroes suck join gaia Mm -hmm. there could have been so many interesting ways to weave in even if it was like female temptation and like femme fatale into this other than making her literally like so powered down and so lame as to run like a department store it also doesn't even make sense at least cersei's spa kind of makes sense spas you can make the case that like the spa is about transformation and she does that's like what she does she transforms people Medea, like, she's not a deal maker. They make her sound like Rumble Silskin or something in this book, like, where she's, like, laying out the terms of the she contract. Have had an apothecary. That doesn't make sense. Yes, that would have been perfect. Yes. Pharmacist. Or even a apothecary. Pharmacy. Yeah. Or even a pharmacy. These all make more sense. A department store, like, she's not a trader. She's not, like, a deal maker. She's not a merchant. None of these things apply to her. The only, like, she has one magical item that she makes, which is the fucking, like, sunscreen thing that she gives Jason in order to, like, defeat the flaming bulls. Such a wasted opportunity, which is similar, like, this, like, little example that he has of his writing of Medea, Rick Riordan's, is, like, encompassing all of the wasted potential of the thing of, like, bringing mortals back from the dead to be their antagonists. Yeah. yeah. Like, I think the best mortal of old times interaction in like all of the book series still in my view is probably dataless in mm. battle of the labyrinth which is really sad because in these books there's literally an excuse to have dead people come back to life and i feel like it's just right dataless was genius there is one interesting moment in this conversation between piper and medea where piper is like you were a murderer you were an mm-hmm. evil woman i'm not going to trust you and medea is like what are you talking about i was the victim and it's just like two sentences of dialogue. And I, I, I don't really know what to do with it because it's just kind of there, but we completely skip over it. And I don't know if Rick was putting it there really even consciously, like so that I would think about it as a reader of a young age, or if it was just kind of there as like a weak sauce attempt to be like her charm speaking Piper out of it. I don't know. It was weird. I just had to acknowledge though. Yeah. No, it's very important to acknowledge because it would have been a really good space to even add like a paragraph, like, of Piper reflecting yes. on that. Yes. Like, Piper. Yes, absolutely. Like, we rarely get to shirk the societal, like, understanding of, like, how so many of these women in Greek mythology are actually the victim and the yeah. gods were playing around with them. Mm-hmm. And it's always touched on, but you never really gives the depth that depth that it deserves and that so many teen girls Literally. benefit from hearing. Absolutely. And also on, on another side, I think it is so not fair 
to put the onus on these female villains, if you want to call them that. In the scene in the department store, like Leo and Jason, there is no mention of them like having any sort of ability to fight anything. And it's just like, oh, right, they're so simple. And then they come to and they're like, oh, did we do something wrong? Well, it was the evil woman's fault. They talk about uh, Piper being able to resist other people's charm speak. They talk about like the, the sheer will of a lot of these female characters and the men have none of that. And we're just supposed to be like, well, they can fight, so it's fine. I don't know. I, I would like to see some of the men be held responsible for their actions and like not be able to just be like, oh, we were controlled because the women are so evil. Like, Yeah, I feel like there's so many instances where it's like, turn your fucking hormones yeah. off. <laughs> like literally turn your hormones off and like think critically about these situations you guys are trained and like literally military tactics in combat like you they teach military tactic heads. at uh camp jupiter and camp half but they don't teach like emotional maturity they don't offer like counseling they don't offer therapy there's no, there's no like there's no female mentorship and they have it's like the oracle rachel elizabeth darren and Alex. <laughs> the one wise mentorship character they could have in some capacity is locked up in the house attic and they're doing the worst part is that Rachel and Annabeth are doing their best in these books to like be the females in charge and they shouldn't have to, but they're killing it. Because they're also teenagers. They're not even Literally. adult. Like there's not enough yep. adult women mentorship at Camp Half Blood, and that needs to be. Oh my god, can you imagine if Piper had like met Medea and Medea had talked Piper out of having a relationship with Jason? Because that's really what I crave in this moment. Like for them to acknowledge yep. Yep. the new Jason as like being dangerous we don't even get it's like so close and it's not there at all what if piper talked to medea and like brought medea back to camp and medea was like at camp and medea was a female mentorship figure and she for was everyone. training demigods and witchcraft like yeah. there is so much capacity for more yes how cool would that be i want to like cry thinking about it whatever Mm, that's not how it goes but i do want to offer we kind of listed out some like other tellings of medea if you're interested in like engaging with more medea versions um cersei obviously she's she's not a very huge character in there but it is mentioned and there's a lot of powerful female witchcraft and female empowerment and um living alone on an island with your lions in that book so that's a good one i want to plug <laughs> it, this isn't like the least problematic version of medea ever but it's this musical by michael john lahusa called marie christine it's sort of like an opera musical piece that audrey mcdonald did several years ago where she played a version of medea and part of it was set in the turn of century new orleans and there was a lot of like you know quote unquote voodoo energy going on and marie's you know kind of you know similar to hazel's mom queen marie based on the original like marie catherine laveau the historic voodoo practitioner etc etc audrey mcdonald plays like the daughter of a voodoo witch and she falls for like a white man and it's all about that and i think it's a really interesting story and the music is really cool and it's also audrey mcdonald so why not also a medea stimmen by christina wolf i have not read but has come highly recommended to me i think we should also like just in case i texted her and she hasn't replied but i think we should leave a pause here in case julia wants to drop something in later Julia has taken a whole class on Medea, like just Medea. So I think she might be able to drop in maybe a quick like minute of thoughts, maybe maybe the synopsis of her final essay for the class. <laughs> Where did know. she go to school that they offer Medea class? Well, of course, Barnard. I should have went there. Goddamn, <laughs> I should have went there. <laughs> so the next person we're going to look at, the wins, I guess, all at once are something that we should tackle. That's Aeolus, the king of the winds, as well as the north wind, Boreas, and his um, daughter. I looked it up after last time. Keone, I That's think, okay. um, who is the uh, goddess of snow. 
Aeolus, for those of you who remember him from the olden times, like in a lot of the myths is described as basically this mortal man who like just covers up a hole in the side of a cliff that is filled with the winds, like an ordinary person. And then at the request of the gods of like heroes who he feels bad for, he'll like open his hands up a little bit and then he'll let some of the winds specifically go out. He also, in some of the old myths, would like give heroes bags of winds. I believe it's Odysseus, right, who gets the bag of winds mm-hmm. to help yep. like push his sails on his quests. Odysseus, Which is something we saw in Sea of Monsters. Yes, like the thermos. Um, Percy and Odysseus also both have the same problem with the winds where like they all get loud at the same time. And it, the same thing happens in a later one of these books where all the winds get released at the same time and it blows everybody off course. But Aeolus is presented in a way that I think is pretty interesting. He's like a weatherman is like their yeah. modern retelling of his story. Like he does the show in which yeah. the Olympians in real time are coming into his earpieces and telling him like what weather they want based on very like various temperamental on the spot reasons. And he has to try and balance all of the demands. They try to make him like a very anxious Hollywood type, I would say. Yeah, I like it. I like how Rick kind of acknowledged the fact that he's such a weird figure in mythology. He's like not really a god. It's yes. like sometimes later on he is a god. At the end of the scene, he's like, can, you think, can they promote me officially to a god? Because like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I thought that was a cute, like self-aware nod to the myths. The gods and characters always get brought back to like run shops or like sell things. Or in this case, he is like a tool of the system. Like in his modern capitalist retelling, I kind of like this version of him as like a stressed out weatherman. And he's funny. Yes. I think it's a very nice metaphor that like his palace is barely tethered to the world. And like he is a very thin line of wind away from being completely blown away and being tethered to no form of reality, which is funny because he like essentially runs a reality TV weather station. So I think it's a funny way to play with the word reality there. Yes, definitely. I I think it might be uh, whatever her name is. She ends up marrying Coach Hedge. Spoiler alert. (laughs) She's kind of like, yeah, you know, that saying, whichever way the wind blows, that that comes from him, which I think, which I think is nice. Yeah, I love when he ties in little. I love that. What are they like? Idioms, yeah, I love those. Yeah, Yeah. we love the wordplay. Yes, that's kind of all I have to say. Overall, very fun side quest. (laughs) Yes, no complaints. It felt it felt classic Rick. This is how they should be structured. Yes, yes. Having a take, modernizing, and like really sticking to it. He just doesn't commit with the rest of these bets. Yeah, (laughs) he can write men. It's unfortunate, but he can. Oh my god! Like Daedalus is so good. Yeah, Minos is so good, or Minos is so good. Shiny, powerful, crazy men. Very good. I do feel like Daedalus, yeah, Daedalus, well, oh no, his spirit is very masculine, but I do feel like it's low-key alluded to that his bodies were not always male, which I think is powerful. Non-binary kids. Wait, really? I don't remember this at all. I may have completely made that up and imagined that in my head. No, I agree, because I've always thought of him as, like, kind of, like, existing outside of the gender binary, because he just chooses whatever He's just a soul in a robot, so. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> this is so random, but it just it just made me think of this of like, this really has nothing to do with anything. It's just about children of Athena. Because I've been thinking a lot of especially as we go like in the Roman stuff and like that gets later on. You can talk about that in Mark of Athena, but like how Minerva is technically a maiden goddess. So like Annabeth shouldn't exist. But it got me thinking that like she tells Percy at one point that children of Athena are sprung from the brain of their mother yep. And it made me think of like, oh, one of the reasons that she doesn't get along with her dad is that her dad did not intend to have this child. Oh. With other godly mortal interactions, it's a oh. very much like, uh, like if you're, like there's no way that uh, Piper's dad, uh, something McLean, whatever his name is. Tristan. Tristan. 
Tristan McLean. Like, there's no way he didn't know he was having sex with Aphrodite. Like, like that was a very physical relationship. And like, you know, and there's a plan that goes into that. But I feel like he could have just been like having this amazing intellectual conversation with Athena and then a baby was dropped on his doorstep and he doesn't know. So like, that makes me think, like gives me another unique perspective about children of Athena. Yeah. Like wisdom's daughter walks alone, whatever. Talk about consent. And right. she didn't have kids in the original myth. She just had like demigods that she would like patron and like. Yeah. But like, of course, Athena smalls, falls for smart people. Back to my whole thing of gods are basic. <laughs> okay. Should we um, skip to Midas who, contrary to Aeolus, I think being a great version of an older character modernized, I think Midas sucks. I think he's so boring. He also just like has a palace. We meet his son. I, it's so unnecessary. Nothing happens here. We already mentioned that we think we could cut this, but like. I forgot it he was felt- even in this book. Like, I thought that I literally forgot. And Midas is, like, such a... Has the potential of being such a good character. My theory is that Rick knows that everyone knows the story of King Midas. And so he didn't have to put that much effort. And I feel like he often puts effort into lesser-known yeah. gods as, like, an educational moment. So I think that he knew people, knew the mythology. There wasn't that many unique places to go with it. Right, That's and true. I thought it was kind of a waste... I thought it was a waste with this group of demigods because like it would have been so cool to see the guy who turns everything he touches to gold face off with the daughter of Pluto who can control <laughs> precious metals. Like that would have been, I felt like a much better just- juxtaposition or use of Midas. But I-, I felt like it was such a waste also because it's like, oh, cool. Midas is gone and now he's done and, and we faced him. Yes. And I also thought it was a weird way of using Leo's abilities of like to get into the house leo's like oh my dad's the god of the forge so i can figure out where all the booby traps are and it's like okay really <laughs> but that's yeah, daddy the- hephaestus coming through always with the heat <laughs> i think like my favorite part about the midas myth is how he judged a music competition between yes. pan and apollo, apollo and he and chose pan, pan one. <laughs> and apollo was like you bitch and apollo gave him donkey ears I, th- that's my favorite like i don't care about the gold thing i think that's so funny like that he had the audacity to say no to Apollo and Apollo was so petty that he cursed him. This is the thing about Midas that like, I think his story is supposed to be about like a stupid person basically like having like gauche taste. Like he's supposed to be <laughs> this like, um, like indictment of like nouveau riche aesthetics and like ethics all at once. But this book doesn't like, it's oh not just God. that he doesn't like <laughs> deal with that on like the level of his powers or like write like a cool fight scene or something. The, you know, the myth of Midas is like really heavy morals attached to it in like a weird way that would I think also be really interesting to dive in on more. Dionysus like gives him the Midas touch as like a reward and it ruins his life mostly just yeah. because he's an idiot though. <laughs> I feel like he it would have been like why doesn't someone just feed him? He touches his food and yes. the gold and he's like I can't eat I have to give it up. He has like a hundred servants. Yeah. Doesn't make like, sense. Like I think it would have been really interesting to be like like wow like this is such an indictment of like the way capitalism actually works because you know it's just people who are just trying to to get by being given these like weird random gifts that totally ruin their lives and don't actually change anything in the long run for anyone. But they don't actually right, like a hundred dollar stimulus check that everyone's going to use to buy random stuff instead of actually doing anything with it because it can't cover a month of rent in any of the United States. But we don't have to get into that. I'm already angry about the stimmy, so we don't have to get into that. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's that. I think that's that on Midas. So I think we should take a quick two minute break and then we'll start talking about Leo. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, guys, this is our plug for Fedwich. Fedwich is so oh good. Fedwich okay. in D.C., 1517 uh, Connecticut, Connecticut Avenue. Ave. It's located within Kramer's, which used to be Kramer Books and Afterwards. And they, the Federalist Pig collaborated with them to start a sandwich pop-up shop. And we highly recommend it. Very cheap for the D.C. area. They give great coupons on the weekend of 20% off oh. and free delivery. Do you think they'll pay for this ad? <laughs> oh, my God. Actually, today's episode is sponsored, but not actually by Fedwitch. Fedwitch, please give us free sandwiches. Like, we've been twice in the past week. Literally in the past week. I think it might be, uh, I think it might be Leo time. So, uh, All right. Leo Valdez time. Oh. Let's dive back. My desire as we dive into leo is that we all go around in a little circle and we give a three three words to describe mr valdez from our point of view and i think carter should start my three are comedic relief incel and i think that this is going to be a really hot take but i'm prepared to defend it okay um actually jackson go next because i have to think of mine uh funny mechanic twink i was gonna say i was gonna go i was kind of close to that okay um Greasy, elvish, yikes. <laughs> Mine were spunky, charismatic, and persevering. Wow. And then uh, everyone said funny things. Cards on the table. <laughs> I think it's really funny that on this Google Doc, Erica, it, like it says, everyone have a three word description for Leo, and then Erica commented a paragraph um, for herself. Those are just my personal notes. Um, now that we all know where we stand, is he funny? Is his voice funny? Is he funny in the book? Is he the comedic relief that we need? Carter thinks yes, I think. My answer is no. I, I like don't. Oh. I think we've talked about how in this book, most of the comedic voices kind of get blended together and all the characters tell the same joke. And the joke is like weird nicknames that sound like they come from your like 40 year old middle school teacher or something. You know, like, I don't know. I just feel like Leo's voice in the books is not as strong as it could be. And that, that's what Rick does best is like this kind of more specific character based humor. I do feel like his chapters are the only ones that save this book for me. I don't think he's nearly as funny as Percy, but he is the like, he at least has like a point of view on things where I feel like mm -hmm. I'm getting a point yes. of view on events that happen. And so I look forward to his chapters in this book, even though I'm not like laughing out loud. If he sounded exactly the same as Percy, then we also want it like that. Mm -hmm. That's also another thing that I think Rick does very well is that he writes about childhood trauma in a very accessible way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I know there's so many young kids out there that feel good to be acknowledged as foster kids or having guilt over a parent's death or being abused growing up or dealing with domestic violence. So I really appreciate that. But I found that Leo's chapters were so refreshing because it reminded me of Percy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Should we talk more about the trauma? I think that it's a good segue. We should talk about the unnecessary violence against uh, characters of color in this entire series. <laughs> yeah. Leo, his backstory, I think like it is true that his backstory is the most traumatic. I think we can all agree more or less, right? That like of all the seven, like his Hazel. childhood. Hazel's is pretty intense. Tyson's is pretty bad. 
Also, okay. Oh, Go me there. About, yes, Tyson's is... They had Tyson dirty. It's a bad backstory, but, like, like you said, like, the trauma of, like, believing that you were responsible for, like, the death of your parent and then going through, like, the foster care system is, like, really... I don't know. When I read this, like, I was reminded of, like, the trope of, the like, the very gratuitous violence against characters of color as a way of, like, deepening them or, like, a typical way of for white writers to sort of access, like, what that backstory should look like. And it gets worse once we, like, as we mentioned, like, note that, like, the only other person in the story who I would say has, like, a similarly, like, terrible backstory is Hazel, who is the one black character in the seven and Leo is the one like Latinx character in the seven. And it, it makes me feel uncomfy, but I do like, like that notwithstanding, like I do agree with Ola that like, I think it's written pretty well and it's written in a way that would lift up those stories in a way that's like humane and understanding. Yeah. Like, I think that it's interesting that I keep forgetting that like he did grow up in foster care. It's not like his defining trait that he was a foster kid. Like he has this personality that he like is very self-aware about the fact that he just developed it so that he could get along with people as he met them, you know, in in new situations growing up. But like, it's not. Yeah. Which is an interesting coping mechanism, especially when you examine his godly parentage of like the number one thing that Hephaestus says is that like he is not good with organic life forms. They're too messy. They're too out there. And so I think it's interesting that like Leo has to kind of develop this tool almost of a way to interact with living people. Yeah. And I also think it's kind of like uh you maybe should have known that something was potentially up with Jason being in the wilderness school right away because Leo talks about how they're best friends and how they mesh so well. And like unfortunately that's not something like that's a glitch in the matrix. Yeah. See, literally, I completely agree. <laughs> But I think, like, circling this thing about, like, one, Hephaestus and, like, Hephaest children of Hephaestus not being good at talking to people, and also Leo finding feeling at home at camp, and also like, him simping, him kind of being an incel, especially later on in the book. I, it kind of does, like, interestingly all tie together, and I like that he goes the opposite way of Hephaestus. Like, Leo was not unloved by his mom in any sense, but he did mm -hmm. grow up, like, without parents for most of his childhood, and Hephaestus mm -hmm. was thrown off the mountain by his mom. And so mm -hmm. they both have this, like, extreme need to be loved uh, like by everyone like they have to feel love because mm -hmm. they never had it and Hephaestus completely rejects that and he says I don't care about people I'm gonna live with my machines people will hurt me and Leo like puts himself out there constantly and he's like no love me love me love me like mm -hmm. you're gonna love me and I will find love um and he finds like that home at camp and he's so happy about yeah. it but then also like he is the one who's he's constantly like I need a girlfriend like I don't have a girlfriend yeah. I'm the only one without a girlfriend um, <laughs> we've met a few of those in our day and that's yeah. what we run into the guys. problems with him right like <laughs> yes because i like love the boy so proud of him for what he's gone through and like finding a place of happiness and like also he's so talented he's amazing he's so powerful he's got really great powers he's a smart guy but i think this is the last book where i like really do like him because i feel like it gets to a point for me where it's like too realistic to men in our lives that i know we're like my entire friendship with them has been whittled down to every time i see them they're like I need a girlfriend. Like, I don't have a girlfriend. Like, I have to find a girl. Like, did you know that I'm committing myself to finding a girlfriend? Like, this is the semester I find a girlfriend. Did you want to hear about my last five dates? They all <laughs> suck. I can't find a girlfriend. And it's like, And then what? you meet the woman they date and they're like, yeah, this date was terrible. I've never felt that uncomfortable before in my life. And it's just like, oh, yep. that tea's piping. <sighs> that was a personal... We no, to go on, it's, 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 so it's, it's important because like the way that they write his story is such that you are inclined to like him and you understand why he is the way that he is and there are endearing parts of it. But the way that this should conclude is with 
therapy, as it always <laughs> is in these books. You know, like it's not like these things, these attributes don't make him a bad person. What makes him a bad person is the fact that he continues to like manifest them uncritically and that Rick's resolution for him. Okay, like kind of spoilers. I'm not going to spoil, spoil it, but like I-, I will just say that like Rick does not really in my view, who complicate this at all. Like, we're like the whole story, Leo's arc is more or less like, Leo deserves love. So he's going to keep looking for it by being like the fun, reliable guy with the jokes. And um, no, 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 no. And then like, <laughs> basically, he's like rewarded for that at the end. Like, they're like, at, at the end, like Rick's moral, I would argue, is them saying like, you know what? He was right. Everybody else was like wrong to doubt him. And it was on them. And now we will resolve this with like, people having learned their lesson about like the Leo Valdezes of the world and how we ought to treat them, which it's, it's frustrating. It's really frustrating. Yeah. I feel like we're going to have to revisit this conversation, like at the end of the series, uh, when everything goes down um, in blood of Olympus. Yeah. Cause I completely agree, but I feel like I can't talk about it fully until like, I see him do it, like repeat the behavior. Cause in this book, I, d- I do like him. Like, I think he's great. Well, he's, he's fun and he's wonky and he is, Good comedic relief. Good comedic relief, especially boring. especially when it's like Jason's so brooding and Piper's so edgy and Leo's like, hi, hey, I can burn things with my body. I found a family. <laughs> oh, this is this is so dumb. This is so dumb, but I just need to talk about it. I know I wasn't on for the Piper episode, but I think it is so fucking dumb that like she can just speak French. Um, Why is that funny? I think that's so dumb. And, yes, like, yes. More on that. <laughs> but I think it's, like, so not fair that you have, like, Percy can make a little hurricane and Jason can fucking fly. But don't worry. Piper can speak it's French. It's the language without... of love. Yeah, Why I is French that, the language like... of love? That doesn't... Because white people. Yes, white exactly. People exactly. Exactly. Western folks said it was the language of love. And we left it at that. It's like, why can't she speak Japanese fluently? Why can't... Well, why would a chair... Like, why would they... Why would she speak Japanese? Why would she speak French? Because Western It's the people- language of love. <laughs> yeah, according to Western people. The whole point of the books is to save the Western world. Not the whole world, just the Western world. I just think it's dumb. I thought it was actually quite interesting. Really, Ola? Because they always talk about how demigods struggle with languages. And it's really nice that we have a demigod that seems to excel at that. And I thought it was an extra dimension in what's otherwise explained multiple times. They have a hard time doing anything but reading ancient Greek and Latin. I thought it would be nice if one of them spoke a Roman language. Right, but at the same time, like, if you're in a battle, like, it's not, like, quick. Percy, you create a tsunami. Jason, you build a hurricane. And Piper... She has charm speak. Okay, she feels like it's a cornucopia. It's just like, Piper, quick, I need a recipe for eclairs. You tell it to me in perfect French. Like, I think it's not fair. And Percy... It's like how Annabeth is good at architecture. Mm, right but also she's a master battle tactician and they go to her for advice all the time and like ola and i were talking about this earlier like i think it would have been much more interesting to see a male child of aphrodite and potentially like a female child of hephaestus because like that i feel like would turn it on its head i'm the female child um period maybe we should pivot from this to like leo's relationship with piper um now that we've brought piper up because I don't know about y'all. I thought this was weird. That, like, so this is another case where it's a glitch in the Matrix. They would never be friends. It's a glitch in the Matrix, right? Like, they're the only people in this book who actually genuinely know each other in real life and, like, have been kind of friends for, like, a year or something, right? But they, like, barely have any conversations and their conversations don't make any sense. Well, I think that that goes slightly... 
that can go slightly to their parentage of Hephaestus and uh, Aphrodite, who are technically married, and they were forced to be together because, like, Zeus low-key was like, here's my son, and to stop all the gods from infighting about who gets to be with the most beautiful woman, let's give him to my hideous son to marry, because, you know, that'll work. And so I think that it's interesting that, like, I think it's it speaks to, like, Rick kind of forced them together, and it makes sense that they wouldn't be friends. But at the same time, I think too often, Hephaestus gets overlooked as, like, the, the sad, like, we feel bad for him, because, like, he's ugly and Aphrodite cheats on him because he's not pretty enough for her. And like, that's one of the reasons he's with, she goes with Ares all the time. But also it's like, I think it's really funny for Aphrodite because like she does that because she doesn't get any validation from Hephaestus because he's like, I don't care if you're the most beautiful woman in the world, you're still an organic life form and I'm more comfortable with my machines. And you cheat on me constantly. But he likes that because, well, he doesn't, well, he doesn't cheat on her. I feel like being with mortals outside of like Zeus and Hera isn't considered cheating. Because they're all dogs. Right. Everyone's in the doghouse constantly. Except Hephaestus though, he'd be treating his baby right. Because Hephaestus is a strong black man. Except for Leo, who he leaves in the foster care system for years. Okay, yeah, I take that back. I take that back. I, I retract my statement. I retract my statement. But he messes around with women of color. We're not seeing that anywhere else, really. I think I have a very odd, needs to be impact sexual I'm attraction to Hephaestus. <laughs> We just know Hephaestus is just doing the Lord's work. I never get the sense that Hephaestus is cruel or vindictive. He un- he is a god who, unlike every other god, understands suffering, mm-hmm. who understands pain, and who understands, like, this is spoiling a little bit of Trials of Apollo, but, like, Apollo and a lot of these other male gods are so incredibly vain, and they are so self-centered, and so much of their godliness is, like, oh, I want statues to me here. I want shrines to me there. I want to look and feel perfect because that's who I am. And I think that Hephaestus understands what it's like to be the outcast. I feel like he wants his children not so much to like praise him, but to like go and do good work. Like the way that you build shrines to Hephaestus is to use the gifts that he gave you. Whereas like other gods are like, you better use your talents to pray to me and use your talents to be like me. I think that Hephaestus, and he was probably upset when Gaia killed his mortal love. Sorry, that was, I did not expect to go that deep. No, yeah, we kind of, we already covered the, like, mostly of, like, this conversation about his trauma, and, like, I don't know if this is any more relevant to the conversation, but I do just, like, genuinely feel, like, especially also given Hazel's background instead of Neptune, that, like, just the violence in general in these books is so much more, like, intense to read and like experience and envision in your head and I think it's because most of it isn't funny the kind of like violence that Percy experiences or that he talks about in the original series from his point of view he's like haha maybe I'll die tomorrow lol even when Percy like gets exploded out of a volcano but in these books it's like it's not funny and it's not like there's the, no quirky relationship with death. Yeah, go ahead, Carter. I think the reason why is because the violence is like not mythic in this book in these books like a lot of the violence mm-hmm. that we read like is from real systems and structures in the world that um do actually inflict violence on real people or is like percy and his mom like aren't well off but like most of the really bad things that happen to them happen because of gods still whereas like the foster care system is just bad and it's bad in the real world and that's like the system that like makes leo's life terrible and like with hazel too like a lot i guess you can make the argument that a lot of that is because of like her mother's bad relationship with yeah 
Pluto, but like there are also like lots of ways in which her life is terrible because she is a really poor, marginalized, like black woman living in New Orleans and like the nineteen in the nineteen forties. Yeah. Should we talk any about Festus? <laughs> Do we need to cover that? Because this is Leo's episode, like finding the bunker, any of that cool stuff that he does. Oh yeah, Bunker Nine, which which Chiron says, oh we can't talk about that. The last time we used that was during the yep. Civil War. Which does that imply that the Romans were the Confederates? And they talk about it, it again does. in Book Three in oh. Mark of Athena. They literally go to Fort Sumner and they're like, <laughs> Fort Sumner, where the American Civil War started, and they were like. The Romans were here because the Romans were literally part of the Confederacy. And then they backpedal a little bit and they're like, there were bad people on both sides. Okay, so the Romans had slaves. Are we acknowledging yes, that? Yes, they explicitly the like, Rome had slaves. had slaves, which is its own whole weird historical thing because Greek people also had, had slaves. slaves. It's just different to talk about because Rome was its own, like it was an empire, whereas Greece, of course, did not exist as Greece until recently. It's, it was just like a broad collection of city-states Many of which had slaves, but none of which you can really say had like a slave holding empire for an extended period of time. It was weird. It's weird writing. I think it also, here's just another thing. I think it goes to show that the kind of character that Leo is, that he's like really great, but even we are struggling to find things to talk about. We're going from topic to topic he's to kind topic. Of a caricature. But, like, none of really yeah. but none of them are really Leo. Because everything else re- regarding Leo is more interesting than what we really get from him in this first book. Like later on, we're gonna have so much yeah. to say, but we can't do any spoilers. There's just not enough of him that we really get in the Lost Hero. All right. I mean, is there anything else anyone wants to say about <laughs> Leo? I think we agree that like just because this book is so difficult, it's like kind of lacking in plot and therefore like character development. There's just not all that much going on. I think even the Son of Neptune gets infinitely better than these do as far as the background stories on. Um, Hazel well, crazy how a book with Percy is better than a book without Percy. Like, Jesus. Period. The whole first series is called Percy Jackson and the Olympians. <laughs> and then they try to do this fuck shit where they give us a whole book without him. We were just yeah. supposed to keep going. I think we should end with a quote. <laughs> this is on page 344. I try very hard to be annoying, Leo said. Don't insult my ability to annoy. And how am I supposed to resent you if you go apologizing? I'm a lowly mechanic. You're like the prince of the sky, son of the lord of the universe. I'm supposed to resent you. I think that, like, for me, really concisely <laughs> wraps up everything that I feel about Leo. About this book, And basically this know. book's entire outlook on him, frankly. Um, and with that... <laughs> Thank you guys both for being here despite, like, the literal crazy week. Thank you so much for having Thanks us. Thanks for having it's us. such a pleasure. We love doing this. Follow us on it's social media, See We Braid Podcast. We have some merch now. I will link that in our show notes. We also have a website where we have show notes now, which is fun and exciting. <laughs> okay, next week we're talking about Jason with Ola and Jackson again. So, oh boy, another damaged white boy for us to talk about. <laughs> Can't, Can't fucking wait. wait. See y'all then.